Pixelsift is proudly supported by the Murdoch University School of Arts, and they might have what you're looking for in a creative degree. If you're keen to learn more, have a look at murdoch.edu.au forward slash arts to find out what they've got on offer. That's murdoch.edu.au forward slash arts, or you can search Murdoch University for more information. Mur- Murdoch University School of Arts proudly supports Pixelsift. Pixelsift. Hello and welcome to episode 142 of Pixel Sip, the show dedicated to indie games from around Australia and the world. My name is Daniel and with me tonight is my co-host Gianni. Thanks for joining me, Gianni. Hey Daniel, how are you? Uh, very well, thank you. How are you? Very, very good. Very excited to learn more uh, about a whole bunch of topics on the podcast tonight. Definitely. And our guest this week is Ron Curry, who is the CEO of Interactive Games Entertainment Association, or IGEA for short. Thanks so much for joining us tonight, Ron. Yeah, no worries at all. Great to be here. But before we get into that, Gianni, what are we having a look at? We're going to talk about a service called by NVIDIA. It's called GeForce Now. Uh, it's a live streaming service, which means that you play the games that you own, but you play them over the internet rather than installing them on your machine. Uh, but there's been a little bit of... Uh, questions around the way that the service has been rolled out and some developers have asked to have their games removed so we'll find out all more about that all right let's get into it australia's best video game podcast subscribe to pixel sift on apple podcasts spotify and wherever podcasts are found well it's 2020 and you might be asking yourself what is the future of games we've had in the last week or so, the announcement of the specs, the hardware for two new game consoles, the PlayStation 5 and the Xbox Series X. Um, but the, a big part of that future could be, it could be streaming. It could be a subscription service that you play uh, to access over the internet. And maybe those consoles may not be as integral to playing games. Now, GeForce Now is a service. It's not brand new. It's in fact been around since 2015, um, but it allows people to stream games over the internet uh, to a device called the NVIDIA Shield, which is a basic a streaming box that you plug into your, your computer. And now over the years, they've expanded that service's capability uh, and you can actually stream games that you own through your Steam library or other libraries uh, across the internet to anywhere on your phone, wherever. It's kind of had a big sort of public launch uh, in the last couple of months in the United States. Um, but it hasn't uh, gone as smoothly uh, as some would say, hasn't it, Daniel? There's been a few few roadblocks along the way. Yeah, a few different publishers and uh, companies have pulled out of GeForce now. Um, one of them that's notable is Activision. So apparently there was a misunderstanding between the two companies and Activision has pulled out as, they, as GeForce or NVIDIA thought that they were going to stay on from the trial period and extend into the full license and because of that, uh, shortly after, Bethesda has also pulled out. Um, and even another one is Raphael van Lierup, who's the founder of Hinterland Studio, also announced that The Long Dark was actually being removed from the now streaming service. So from a statement, he says, Sorry to those who are disappointed. You can no longer play The Long Dark on GeForce Now. NVIDIA didn't ask for our permission to put the game on the platform, so we asked them to remove it. Please take your complaints to them, not us. Developers should control where their games exist. They offered us a free graphics card as an apology, so maybe they'll offer you the same thing. 
So Gianni, what's your take on, on all of this going on at the moment? I think it's a, it's an interesting uh, interesting sort of direction that the, the games industry is heading towards. It's something they sort of hinted at when the Xbox One was initially launched that they were going to lean heavily into cloud services and use that as the expansion. I think if you cast your mind back uh, several years when the Xbox One was announced, they actually said that you, know, you would buy a game once and it would be attached to your account and it would move around with you, kind of hinting at that link to uh, sort of a more uh, account-based service rather than discs. Um, and, you know, for example, the Xbox One even went to a, 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 a version called the, uh, the all-digital edition, which had no, no disc drive at all. And while you did purchase games, there's also the service called the Xbox Game Pass, which is a, a subscription-based game access service, and there are more and more of those appearing. Uh, now, Ron, I'm curious about, uh, I guess, what you see as the the future of uh, these sort of subscription gaming services in terms of accessing uh, these these games for people to play. Yeah, look, it's really interesting. And I, I think, you know, if we kind of rewind a number of years, we saw the, I guess, the tension between um, home video, for example, um, and places like Netflix, even way back when you know, we were posting discs out to people and, and just kind of that, have we moved along that evolution until today? Netflix is, you know, it's, we can't imagine life without Netflix or Stan or, or, or different sort of catch-up TVs. And I think it's kind of inevitable that that's the way media is going. Music's gone that way. Mm. Uh, film's gone that way. Books are going that way. It's it's no reason why uh, video games shouldn't go that way. But I, I guess we're at the, the pointy end of that where there's this collision of a new business model, uh, a new sort of technology where people are experimenting with, experimenting with commercial uh, ways of, of exploiting their product outside of that and kind of it's that perfect storm at the moment. So I'm not surprised we've got this tension around what's happening with, with NVIDIA. Um, I think it's a path that the industry is going to go down and, I, and I'm not saying the industry is going to go down that this will be the only way uh, that we're going to access games, but it certainly is going to be another model um, for accessing um, all sorts of entertainment products. So this actually leads me into my next question, but Ron, what do you think would need to happen to drive more consumers to the service? Do you think things like exclusive games and rewards are enough to incentivize people to switch over? I think the first thing, you know, let's move content to the side for a moment. Mm. And I guess the first thing we need is is reliable connectivity and, and, a, and I guess a broadband system that we know it's reliable and affordable and, and ubiquitous. And, and doesn't have lag, that'd be lovely. I mean, that's, uh, that's the first thing we'd have to be. Maybe games need to change a little bit. If, if, you, if you consider that you know, we may have a lag problem, we may have a connection problem, then perhaps the style of game we're playing will need to change a little bit around that um, streaming. Um, but in a perfect world, I, I can't see why we would need to change any sort of game. We should, we should be able to enjoy, you know, whether it's a first-person shooter, whether it's action-adventure, whether it's, you know, a game of FIFA, something like that. But, you know, in the perfect world, they all should be available in, in the streaming system. Do you think there's a, an opportunity? The, there's been an, a huge success of Nintendo Switch, which is a, a handheld console that a lot of people are using to play games now and potentially using uh, access to this sort of like streaming service. Maybe it's run by Steam, maybe it's Microsoft, whoever it is, uh, to access some really high fidelity games on, on in a more, much more handheld sort of format. Yeah, we're certainly seeing people enjoying gaming on the move. We know we know that everyone's going, to, you know, they're doing it on their phones, but it's certainly they're doing it on their Switch. And if you could deliver, you know, much more content, high fidelity, you know, less lag, um, 
the piece of hardware, you know, whether that's the switch or the whatever device you're using, if that doesn't have to be the memory bank um, for the game, then look, it's it's amazing. You know, that's that's a great world if you think about it. Um, the connectivity, the engagement, the the, the online um, ability to just play a game against anybody, similarly to what you're going to do sitting at home on your on on whatever console you got or on your PC, but but doing it you know in a in a more transitory nature. I, I do I do wonder, Ron. Um, we we have seen the sort of success of of uh, the subscription services where the game is actually still delivered as a download, like the Xbox Game Pass, and a number of Australian made games like Dead Static Drive are now going to go to that platform. We've had Hollow Knight as well go to that platform. Um, it, do you think that's a good middle step until the, the technology reaches the point where uh, it is able to, to, to stream games across the internet to everyone? Yeah, absolutely. It certainly gives some opportunities for game developers um, to choose. And I think we started off having this comment, you know, you started this in the intro, is allowing game developers to choose their distribution model and their distribution path and, and that and that channel to the market. Um and if this is another way that it bolsters that and lets them reach in and, you know, have their product exposed to people, and, you know, we've seen some great successes. Hollow Knight is an awesome success there, an example, I should say. Um, then, yeah, absolutely, that's, that's a great first step. And do you think there's any challenges that, uh, that developers might need to think about potentially if they are signing themselves up to be part of one of these services? Yeah, I guess, you know, if... if you know, this is the kind of top ahead stuff. But the first thing is, we don't know what these services look like, whether they'll be incredibly successful or not. And I guess it's just being cautious that you don't, you know, give away the whole farm at at the outset before you really know what you're doing. Maybe take a little cautious step about either the amount of, you know, the longevity of of the time you're allowing your product to be exploited, or or the width. You know, we've seen different uh, in in other parts of the media where someone has surrendered their rights for music, for example, and all of a sudden was like, well, I didn't understand Spotify and I didn't understand you are giving it away to YouTube and I didn't understand you were giving it away to movies. It, you know, it's just ensuring that you've kind of got your content and, and your IP locked down um, and maybe just being a little bit cautious about what the future looks like. So one thing that I'm really curious to see how this evolves and unfolds is if there are any games as a service that goes on the subscription model and as you know, with Netflix, for, for example, they have different movies in and out of rotation all the time. What would that look like if mm-hmm. a certain game that was a games as a service and so, you know, heavy online multiplayer focus suddenly went off and a bunch of people couldn't access the game anymore? I wonder if that's, that would be a, a consideration to think about. Yeah, absolutely. That wouldn't be cool at all. Um, and it is, so that's where it is quite different to a linear experience like a film or a, or a TV series. Now, you watch the TV series, you're done. You know, you might be emotionally invested in it, but that's that's about it. Mm. If it's a game, like you're saying, and you're you know, you're invested in you know a whole bunch of hours playing this game, you know, it, investing in the relationships that that happen within an online game, um, I don't think that's as easy as just switching it off and and flicking it out somewhere somewhere else. So, you know, have to give a lot of consideration to what that looks like. Speaking about that, I mean, you know, this isn't most of these services aren't available in Australia. Uh, there's no access to these. Do you think it's when do you realistically think that we in Australia, with the infrastructure we have, will be able to access sort of cloud streaming game services? Doesn't matter what answer I give here, I'm going to get myself into trouble. Um, look, I, I have no idea. You know, the, this, the, the National Broadband Network we have now is, is, if you ask me and, and a lot of the people I speak to, is not fit for purpose, in spite of what the government ha- have told us, as we're all working at home, 
um, at the moment and and streaming our meetings and playing games and watching more more content than we than we normally would. You know, the system is certainly under a heavy load, and I can't see that fixing itself in the, in the near future. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to end the topic there. And coming up very soon, we're going to be chatting to Ron Curry about the recent merger between IGEA and the GDAA. Hey there. If you're enjoying the show and you want to hear more, subscribe to Pixel Sift on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, or listen on pixelsift.com.au. See you there. So today we're joined by Ron Curry, who is the CEO of Interactive Games and Entertainment Association. And we are here to chat to him about the recent merger between IGEA and Game Developers Association of Australia, or GDAA for short. For those of us who don't know, the IGEA and GDAA are major bodies representing game developers and development within Australia. Ron, my first question is, how long has this merger been in development? Um, probably a few years. You know, the, the conversation, the serious conversations, probably been going for two or three years. The collaboration between us has been going a whole lot longer than that. You know, you can, if you stretch back to, you know, 10 years, I guess, you'll see submissions to government and, and representations and lobbying to government where it was both IGEA and GDAA, you know, hand in hand, you know, doing the submissions or, or facing up to government or having those conversations. So it's it's kind of been by osmosis over 10 years. The serious conversations, I guess, started about two years ago, two to three years ago. And they kind of ramped up over the last six months, those conversations. In, in years past, Ron, what, what would you see the role of IGEA uh, and the role of GDAA and, and, and how does that change now that you're one body? Mm. I, I think, you know, if we, if we go back 10 or 15 years, you know, both kicking off as trade associations, it was really clear um, GDAA represented game developers. And that, that was very clear who they were. And IGEA at that time pretty much represented publishers and distributors uh, and platform holders. And that was very clear. You know, it was there was this very um, delineation between what we all did. We had different parts of the market that we looked after. Probably over the last five or ten years, what we've seen is that shift between, well, who are platform holders? Apple's a platform holder, but they're not really like PlayStation. Um, who are the publishers? Well, you've got like Ubisoft and an Activision, but we actually got Australian companies who publish games, but they're also developers. Um, people like what turned out to be Fire Monkeys, who are an EA studio, so they belong to a publisher, but they came from the development world. And what happened is we had this big mix-up. It started to become more and more blurred about who who looked after who, and it became very different or very difficult then to kind of separate whose turf was who. And we did work really closely together to try to make sure that we didn't fall over each other's turf. And I guess what ended up happening, we saw the GDAA on the states and and uh, the incentives and and the funding and the engagement with the states and territories, and largely around Victoria. And we had IGEA working pretty much at a at a Commonwealth level, so doing a lot of the um, government facing work uh, in Canberra. But again, all that started to to morph as well. Um, so I think it just became obvious over a number of years that we were vying for the same members uh, and we were vying for the same uh, attention from from politicians and policymakers and bureaucrats and, and everybody else. It just became obvious that we should be one family, I guess. 
Did, was that a challenge then, I guess, talking about, you know, having those two bodies representative, not sort of appearing that the games industry was all on the same page when you're talking to some of these uh, industry bodies through governments to ministers, all of that sort of thing? Look, I think th- there's always going to be a clash. There's always going to be somewhere where, where there's a bit of tension. But I think we were lucky enough that both associations shared members. Um both and both associations, the heads of both associations. So I guess myself uh, throughout that whole period, and 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 back uh, then was Tony Reed from the GDAA. We'd worked together many years ago, so we, we've known each other for twenty years, which which made it easy for us to jump on the phone and go, actually, you know, where are we, where are we going to land on this issue? Who's going to who's going to front this issue? Um, you know, is there any tension here? How are we going to sort through it? So yeah, look, there was there was times we tripped over each other, but generally that tripping over each other was at least we're running down the same path. We weren't kind of going in opposite directions. Now that the GDAA or GDAA are now part of one organisation, they also run um, GCAP, which is the one of the big conventions, and the arcade in Melbourne. What does that change for IGEA to have these two big? Uh, I guess rather than being sort of from the almost like the industry representative and lobbying sort of perspective only, but now actually having to run a space and a convention, it, it's incredibly exciting. Like the the team, the the IGEA team, and when I I'm, I'm just kind of putting the other the GDAA guys aside for the moment. So the the, the pre merger IGEA team is incredibly excited about it. Our board, are, are, you know, are incredibly excited as well. That's why we've gone down this path. Yeah, look, it will be a challenge. It's not something that that we're good at, and this is what we kind of uh, acknowledged over a number of years. We didn't we didn't try to be put on a show as IGA. That's what the G, the GDAA were really good at. They were great at running the arcade. Um, the arcade's not changing. The same team who run the last week are running the arcade next week. There's there's no difference there. Um, GCAP, um, we're largely where we can using the team that the G or the People who in the past run GCAP are helping us run GCAP moving forward. Um, you know, we've we've attended GCAP every year for the last 10 years. We've been sponsors for 10 years. We've been actually actively engaged with the GDAA around content over those 10 years. So it's going to be new to us, but it's going to have a familiar feel for us. And, you know, we're looking for people, we're looking to the people who'd run it in the past to ensure they keep us honest uh, and help us deliver what we hope is is a continually better show based on the learnings and the foundations of the GDAA. On that, with those two uh, big assets that you now run, you said you've got a lot of the same team there that are involved in that who've been running in the past, so people can sort of can expect a sort of continuity of the way that it's all been going. But I'm wondering, does it change the way when you have presented to Parliament, to state governments all around the country, does it change that position now that you do actually operate this big convention and you operate a co-working space as well? Yeah, I, I think it will. I, I, both of those for sure. The first thought is going with a single voice. So even though we've been able to go to government before and say, you know what, hand on heart, we we are speaking for the whole industry, um, understanding that there's another trade association. So the first big step for us is saying, you know what, we are the body representing the whole um, fair game industry, which includes Publishers, developers, distributors. So, so that's the first great thing to be able to say. There's no, they don't, not, the government aren't looking around saying, well, where's the other voice? Is there another voice? What, are you sure you're speaking for them? Um, 
it's incredible when you can turn up or bring a politician, I should say, or, or stakeholders to the arcade and show them what the arcade looks like and show them the vibrancy of the video game industry, show them the, the width of product that's in there. So, you know, for us, that's a fabulous asset. And, of course, GCAP is GCAP. Is GCAP. It's, it's enormous. Last year was the first year that we got every state and territory's screen industry to turn up for a meeting at GCAP, which was fantastic. And we, we hope to continue that this year. Um, we already heard from most of the states and territories that are really excited to come along again. Thanks for watching Pixel right. Sift. If you're just joining me, we are watch, uh, we are talking to Ron Curry, who is the CEO of Interactive Games and Entertainment Association. Ron, um, are there any plans that the arcade could be rolled out interstate? Possibly. It's not something that we've discussed at all. Um, you know, one of our commitments was um, when taking over the arcade that for at least six months, the arcade anything with it, apart from support it as best we can uh, and, and support the team there. We didn't take over the arcade with a plan to expand, uh, nor do we take over the arcade with a plan to get rid of it. The arcade is kind of iconic uh, and it, you know, it stands alone. We'll see what the future holds. It's Currently, it's not part of our thinking. And just moving towards the future, um, I would be remiss not to mention COVID-19, and we're expecting a pretty rocky economic time within the next six months. Ron, how do you think yeah. the industry will be affected? Do you think that uh, we'll see game sales rise as people are self in, in self-isolation, or do you think it'll be more of a challenge? Uh, I think I think there's a bit of both in there. I think I, we will see games rise. I, I think it'd be foolish to say we won't. We've seen um, Netflix increase. We'll see games increase. I mean, people people will be looking for ways to in, entertain themselves and relieve boredom and, and and connect. I mean, the, the amazing thing about a game is that not only are you engaging with the content, that you're connecting with somebody. And that's you know, as we're all in. And I spent the whole day, two days now working at home. I was desperate to connect with somebody during the day, whether it's, you know, on Discord or Skype or, or a telephone call. Um, so I think we're going to see more. We're also going to see the challenge of, I guess, from a creative point of view is we've got the teams now. We've got a, we, we have an industry that's very good at working remotely, but not everybody is very good at that. So it's um, getting teams to learn how they go through that whole production process uh, when they're disjointed and when they're away from each other. And that might not be so hard if you've got a three or four or five or 15-person studio. might be a bit hard if you're EA Vancouver and you've got 3,000 people working from home and trying to bring them all together. So I think for some people, maybe for some indie developers, it's some good opportunity here because they're agile and they're nimble and they're used to delivering you know, um, quickly and used to delivering um, content uh, from from a number of different points, bringing it all together. For, for the larger publishers, it may be a little bit more difficult. Ron, the last time we had a larger, large sort of financial uh, downturn uh, was 2008 uh, after the financial crisis then. Uh, it's looking like the, the COVID-19 crisis could be equal to that or worse. And as a consequence of that, we saw a number of the Australian branches of these international developers and publishers close up shop. Um, are you worried that that could happen again? We've recently had Sledgehammer Games open in, in Melbourne. Um, is, there, is there a risk that could could not continue on? Yeah, look, I think we've all, the whole industry learned a lot from the GFC. Um, and I think as studios, larger studios have opened in Australia, they've opened under a different premise. It's not just this cheap work for hire, 
um, businesses that we saw uh, in the last round where it was easy to up stumps and, and move on. We're also seeing that um, games are created slightly different. So, you know, if you look at perhaps Fire Monkeys, for example, the amount of work they do around um, around real racing, that I mean, the game is just continues um, to sell because it's not it's not this product now that has a start and has an end. When it has an end, we close the studio and move on. That's not how games are done anymore. We've got these games as a service, which requires these studios who are staffed up, who are um, expertise have the expertise to continue to deliver that content. So I think a number of things have changed. The business models have changed. The, you know, the way games are created have changed. The, the way um, we manage studios have changed. And certainly the experience of those who are running the studios, uh, particularly in Australia, they know what's happened in the past. And I can't see us going back down that path, I hope. Yeah. On a lighter note, uh, with games like Untitled Goose Game receiving the IGF award and you know global recognition, uh, Ron, what are you most excited for to see where the Australian games industry ends up in the next decade? The, uh, uh, I got two visions there, and it's that we'll continue to have fabulous goose game, like you know Hollow Knight and 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 those sort of indie games that just you know explode, you know, and and successful. Uh, but what I'd also like to see is an industry that that can stand up and compare itself to Canada, for example. Canada has twenty seven thousand game developers. Why have we got fifteen hundred and they got twenty seven thousand? What I want us, you know, in ten years' time to say, you know what? Look at our industry now. We have a great amount of AAA studios. We've got really solid indie studios. We've got some great 50-man, 50 50-person 50 studios. You know, we're, we're a mature, thriving, competitive um, industry that really holds our own against the rest of the globe. That relies on a lot of support from government or some support from government, relies on support from the states. It relies on, um, I guess, some investors being uh, more attracted to what's happening in Australia. But that's certainly, that's my vision. Uh, that's what I'm aiming for the next 10 years. How much support do you need? Yeah, look, it's, if we look at the incentives that are in place, so if, if I'm a AAA game studio and I want to open in Australia, what I do is I look around and go, what does it cost me to open in Australia? It costs blah. What does it cost to open in Norway? Oh, it's 30% cheaper. All right, let's do Norway. Oh, Indonesia's 30% cheaper because these are incentives that are in place. What it needs is the government to look at those incentives and start creating an environment that is similar to other countries or provinces, if we, if we look at Canada, but then understanding the return on investment they're getting on that. We know in the UK um, the amount of money that's invested in industry by the government is far less than what they get back in return in taxes, in revenue, and that's before we start talking about infrastructure and jobs and payroll tax and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, the government could be creating a lot more taxable income and also rely, getting in with an industry that, you know, we're a, a weightless, what we call a weightless export. You don't dig us up. You don't put us on a truck. You don't put us on a, uh, you know, on a ship. You know, it's weightless. It's good for the environment. It's easy. It rolls out. It's scalable. Uh, we just got to get our federal government over the line on this. In other case, I'm very, very excited to see what ends up happening in the Australian games industry and how we end up growing this uh, as we go on. And uh, that's about all the time that we have for today. Thank you for watching or listening to uh, to episode 142 of Pixelsift. This episode has been hosted by myself and Gianni. Thanks for joining me tonight, Gianni. Thank you, Daniel. 
And thank you, Ron Curry, for taking the time to be on our show tonight. No worries. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Jenny. Pixel Swift is produced by Scott Quigg, Sarah Ireland, Fiona Bartholomeus, Mitch Lowe, myself, and Gianni Di Giovanni is our executive producer. We wouldn't have been able to make 142 episodes of Pixel Sift if we didn't have the support of Murdoch University. So please go out and check them out and uh, tell them that we sent you. If you're keen to learn more about a great creative degree, head to murdoch.edu.au forward slash arts. That's murdoch.edu.au forward slash arts. As always, we'll be sticking links to topics we talked about in the show notes on our website. You can go and check that out on www.pixelsift.com.au. And you can come join us on Discord. We'd love to have you there. That's pixelsift.com.au forward slash Discord. We can share your creative work. You can talk about topics and games and anything else. That's pixelsift.com.au forward slash Discord. And if you like what we do, can we ask you a favor? We need your help to share the show. So tell a friend, tell your mate, tell your brothers and sisters and start someone's journey into podcasts um, because we hope that you like what we do and we hope that you have friends who like what we do too and you can share our work with them. Our next episode will be recorded live on twitch.tv forward slash Pixelsift on Thursday, the 2nd of April at 8.30pm Australian Eastern Daylight Time. So please come down and join us and be part of the episode. Next week on Thursday, the 26th of March, it'll be Pixelsift Plays where we play some of the indie games that feature on our show. That's all for this week. Thank you for joining us and we'll catch you next time. Hi, PixelSift listeners. My name's Ben. I'm one of the hosts and the Dungeon Master of How to Win Loot and Influence Dragons. It's a Dungeons & Dragons actual play comedy slash storytelling podcast. That basically means I sit around with some of my best friends, these idiots. And I am your first mate, Jackson Usid. Thomas Horatio Hornblower Owen. Whoa. Grace the Kraken, Chapo! (laughs) And we play Dungeons & Dragons together. Everybody roll initiative, we're going in here. Mine's 11. 19. That's a two! <laughs> <laughs> Telling a collaborative fantasy story whilst trying to make each other and you laugh. I feel like we should include that and just see if we get away with it. Oh, I'm definitely going to include that. <laughs> <laughs> we explore a world known as Carthus and we try and balance the rules-heavy D&D actual play stuff with storytelling, comedy and fun. If you're into nerdy stuff or if you're just into good friends hanging out, you'll probably like it. We're quite close to the end of our current story Story, and it is one continuous narrative, so if you're looking for a place to jump in, I'd recommend listening to Chapter Zero at the very start of the feed, which gives you a bit of background and some ideas for places to start with the show. That's How to Win Loot and Influence Dragons from the Curio Network. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at curionetwork.com. <laughs>